Vital in the Face of COVID-19, Episode 266, When the Scrubs and the Suits Partner Together, Everybody is Happier, Except Maybe Those Looking to Exploit Patients. Today, I speak with Dr. Matt Anderson. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Look, we don't have time to mess around right now. We need to be making good decisions and fast. And these decisions on digital health solutions and other technologies and processes and workflows need to really be made by those who are participating in the care of patients directly or by the patient themselves, or best case, by both together, working as partners, if you will. It doesn't go well for all kinds of reasons when decisions about what patient care is going to look like at a macro level are made by the suits and people or departments or companies who are over there, in quotes, as opposed to here in the exam rooms. Today, I speak with Matt Anderson, MD, MBA. Matt is the innovation lead over at Banner Health. He talks about the importance of physician leadership a lot. And by that, he means doctors and nurses and other clinicians demanding to be heard and demanding that their point of view be a decision-making criteria in how a care delivery system operates. But as we dug deeper, Dr. Anderson and I, a theme emerged, along with multiple mentions of the Shkreli Awards and my conversation with Shannon Brownlee and Vikas Sani, which is episode 260, if you want to look back and listen to that. The theme that emerged in the conversation you're going to hear today was the importance not just of physicians in leadership roles, but of the scrubs partnering with the suits in almost every leadership decision. Doctors and nurses and administrators really have to work together so that the business is sustainable, for sure, but while patients continue to get the best care, also for sure. One cannot sacrifice the other without consequence. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Matt Anderson, MD, MBA. Welcome to Relentless Health Value. Hey, thank you, Stacey. It's great to be here. Technology is obviously not a gigantic, homogenous lump. The idea here would be to distinguish between technologies that were designed for billing and (laughs) and don't necessarily, you know, from the very beginning, did not necessarily have an intent to improve patient outcomes or patient experience or relationships or connected health or any of these things. Any of those things, correct. Versus technologies that have the intent and the opportunity to improve the bond and relationship between clinicians. That's what we're talking about here, yeah? Absolutely, 100%. And I think there's a lot of ways to do that. I really do think that one of the main components of finding those technologies is being intentional about being in the space with clinicians and patients, walking in their shoes, talking with them, being out on the front lines, finding out where some of those pain points are, and then trying to find the solution. I think so many times Times what happens is a solution gets pitched to someone in a health system and the CFO or a board member or, or someone knows someone who has a new startup and it gets thrown into the mix to be evaluated and may solve a problem. But for clinicians and patients, it may cause three or four other problems. 
We think about what scribes do. I mean, it's a, a huge growing job within healthcare is scribing. Every college student wants to be a scribe to get into med school. I mean, there's so many jobs out there for scribes. A scribe is literally just there to take the burden of the EMR off the physician, off the clinician. There's not really a whole lot of other benefits there. And you're introducing a new person into an exam room, a place that's very intimate and very sacred for patients. They've got cascading drug reactions. Yeah. It's almost like you've got t cascading technology reactions. Like you introduce <laughs> one technology, you get three problems, and you find another solution to tackle the problem that the first technology created or the first workflow change. You have to be able to know that whatever solution you have helps clinicians and helps patients. If you keep patients at the center of everything, if all of your goals begin and end with patients, you're not going to go wrong. You just can't go wrong. Physicians, specifically, when they lead on those projects, they understand that. There are always going to be some bad actors. Think back to your Screlly Awards uh, podcast. There's always going to be some bad actors. But I'd say the vast majority of physicians understand that the patient is front and center in that situation. You think about another solution that brought to a group once that I worked with for remote patient monitoring. And it seemed like a really good way to monitor patients in that white space between visits, to monitor them, to be able to identify any issues with their vital signs that they may necessitate more interaction. It seemed like a great idea. But that software didn't incorporate with anything else that the clinicians were actually using. It was a whole separate piece of software, the whole separate login. It was very distinct from any of the other software that physicians used on a regular basis. And what happened was nobody logged in. Everybody kind of forgot about it. The data was there, but nobody was looking at it. That becomes a failed experiment at that point in time because it's there, but you didn't really understand how that clinician's workflow was. It wasn't part of their everyday, and it really was such a barrier to overcome that it just didn't work. Who was it that decided that they were going to do that pilot? It sounds like it was somebody who was over there. It was. It definitely was. And that's another, you know, we kind of get a little bit tribal in medicine. We're a very tribal group. We have the suits and the scrubs. We have those defined lines between clinicians and non-clinicians, between, quote unquote, the administration. Even just within medicine, we sometimes have some of those tribal aspects. But that's one of the reasons why I think physicians have to be leaders in this space. They have to be able to understand the workflows. They have to understand the healthcare business side. They have to understand revenues and secondary revenues and some of the goals that can come out of these things because they already understand the medicine. That part is the door opener. But to be able to understand all those other components, to be able to say, this is going to work or this is not going to work, to be able to say to someone, this doesn't really help a patient and it doesn't help a clinician, why would we do it? Or be able to say these are solutions that keep a patient first, involve our workflow, and actually make things better. Gosh, then you can be a champion of that. If they can find those, they can be a champions. And when physicians and physicians talk, when, you, when you're talking physician to physician, that's a, it's a different conversation. That means so much more when you're having those conversations. And you can really lead, bring people along, open up that tribe a little bit more. You said suits versus scrubs. You've got the suits on the one side who are solely concerned about business. And I'm generalizing again, exactly like you just said, these groups are not homogenous. So, right. <laughs> you know, you maybe you have a bell curve and the top of the bell curve of the suits is business focused. Like they are concerned about throughput. They're concerned about revenue. They are concerned about all the things that your average MBA is going to focus on as a metric. 
On the other side of the equation, you've got the scrubs who, again, the top of the bell curve is going to be concerned about how do I provide the best care for my patients? It sounds like what we're looking for is the best of both. So who we want to be a physician leader, and when I say physician leader, I mean leader of a physician organization, is somebody that can take, in a way, the best of both, that is able to play at the intersection of, obviously, the hospital can't go out of business, so we have to ensure that at some level, somebody's minding the shop. But at the same time, the patient is top and center. And if we're looking at a digital solution, kind of same rules apply. We want a tool that fits within the context of the organization from an organizational level, but at the same time, it promotes patient care. That is a solution that should have five stars. And if it doesn't accomplish both, then all hell is going to break loose. It also limits solutions that are coming in too, because you may not see the benefits to patients on the top line revenue. I'll give you a perfect example. I was talking with the head of a radiology division at an outside institution, and he was a non-clinician. And one of the things we were talking about was point-of-care ultrasound, which I think is a fascinating technology and have used a point-of-care ultrasound machine myself. One of the things that he said was he was involved in a pilot program and he shut it down at his institution and, and basically locked them all up because what they were finding was that they couldn't get the reimbursement for the test at the radiology prices that they want. They wanted the radiology reimbursement rates and they weren't getting it. And so they said, well, why would I do a point of care ultrasound when I can just send them to the radiology suite, get a formal ultrasound and get that radiology revenue? And that's not what I think most clinicians would say. They say, well, if I feel like I need this point of care ultrasound right now, I can just use it now and I can get the answer for the patient right away, start them down their care journey right away. It might not matter that I'm getting that radiology reimbursement. It's sort of compared to like a stethoscope. I don't bill separately when I use a stethoscope. You just don't. It's just a tool that you have. It just makes things easier. If you're palpating the abdomen, you don't bill separately when you use your right hand versus your left hand. I think clinicians understand that and they can say, well, it is better in the long run to be able to use this tool. This may be the future. Whereas a lot of the people you were talking about, the administration side will sometimes say, well, gosh, if if our option is between something with high revenue and something with low revenue, well, we're always going to go with the high revenue no matter what. And that may not always be the ideal situation. A similar example, I was talking to ENT and he developed this little thing that costs a dollar that it helps regulate how much eardrop solution you're using. And it can save thousands and thousands of dollars. Mm -hmm. But no one's got an incentive to put it out there because drug companies going to put out there like their revenue is going to go down. PBM revenue is going to go down. You have to go kind of an ENT at a time in order to, (laughs) to get this out there. It's the same idea, I think. There's such a hill to climb with some of these that most physicians will feel like, no, I'm here to take care of my patients. That part is too messy. We like to be experts in things. We like to know what's going on. We'd like to have a firm grasp of what we're doing. And, and sometimes some of this accounting revenue, business of healthcare, it just is a little bit more foggy. When it's like that, sometimes we'll shy away from it. That's where we need to jump in. If it feels a little bit foggy, we got to jump in. We have to understand what's going on so that we can make some of those arguments. We can speak that language. Accounting and revenue and billing and rev cycle, I mean, those are all a different language and you have to be fluent in it to make some of these arguments. 
And there are some initiatives afoot relative to physicians organizing because maybe physicians have been loath to do so in the past. You think, oh, I'm a professional. This is part of the job to take the phone call during my kid's piano recital. I'm not going to complain about that. And I'm not going to complain about doing this extra paperwork because I don't feel like I should be in a union (laughs) and go up against the man, so to speak. But I think what's starting to become more and more evident these days is that the man, in quotes, is actually reducing physicians' ability to care for their patients. And like at that point, it becomes kind of existential to some level to really step up and learn this stuff in an effort to be the leader as opposed to delegating leadership to somebody else because I don't want to learn what revenue cycle management means. I think there's a lot of opportunities there that within the healthcare system to lead, you're talking about sort of organizing. And that's, I think, just trying to step into roles that were traditionally non, not for physicians is also important. When you think about uh, physicians as CEOs, when you think of physicians as chief operating officers, you think about the role of the chief medical officer over time has changed dramatically. Used to be sort of chief of staff dealing with clinical issues and chastising people when they got out of line. But really, chief medical officers over time have taken on a much larger role. And I think it's only to the betterment of the healthcare system for people to step into some of those other roles and provide that perspective that they wouldn't they wouldn't normally have. When you think about organizing, you think about the trends in medicine right now. It wasn't that long ago that most physicians were in a private practice who owned their own business. They were the man in those situations. And now over time, you continue to see more and more and more employed models, whether employed by a hospital system, a healthcare system, employed in other physician groups, but they're, they're employees. And so I think that sometimes changes that mindset a little bit. But within all of those distinct buckets, there are significant leadership opportunities. Yeah, and it, it does remind me, you mentioned the Shkreli Awards. One of the, let's just say, striking commonalities between a lot of the winners of those Shkreli Awards, which, by the way, if you haven't read the article by the Lown Institute or listened to the podcast that I recently did a couple of episodes ago with Shannon Brownlee and Vikas Sani from the Lown Institute, you should go back and do that. But one of the commonalities between those hospitals was, as Vikas put it, no margin, no mission is an excuse for all kinds of behavior. Absolutely. I think what you're suggesting here is that a way to protect from an institution, an organization, a hospital, hospital system having a lot of margin. And as we see, because hospital margins have skyrocketed in the past couple of years amongst some hospitals, not rural ones, but some. The way to ensure that a hospital has a mission that is greater than or equal to its margin would be to ensure that physicians are in leadership positions across the organization, not just in the narrow silo of what is considered medical care. I strongly recommend that podcast as well in the Screlly Awards. I actually went uh, and went back and I looked at all the different hospital systems that were mentioned in the Screlly Awards. And I was hoping to find a theme. I was hoping to see that most of them didn't have uh, physicians in leadership at the top levels. And I was surprised to find out it was a it was a good blend. So there were a few of those hospitals and systems in the in the top 10 of the Screlly Awards that were physician-led and some were not physician-led. So I was kind of hoping to see a, a trend that I didn't see. But I think back to 
my own training. I trained at Mayo Clinic for residency, and that was one place where I really learned the role that physicians play in a lot of leaderships. You see a lot of physician leadership at Mayo and true partnerships, true dyads as well with physician leadership and operational leadership. And, and that, I think, is a fantastic model. I think you see a lot of people emulating that model over time. But I think there really isn't a component of any healthcare system that couldn't benefit from clinical perspective. And, and maybe it's not always a physician. I think some of our advanced practitioners, nurse practitioners and physician assistants have roles to play as well. I think RNs have a huge role to play in some of these things. So I speak a lot about physicians because I am one and, and uh, feel a connection with physicians. But I think there's there's a role to play for all of our clinical partners in the leadership of, of our healthcare system. It sounds like, though, just having some letters behind your name isn't the only factor. It would also be being an individual that has a compulsion to fulfill the mission of who has a why there, who has a purpose. Absolutely. And I think they have to be very curious as well. You have to be able to be curious. You have to understand how the puzzle starts to fit together after a while and ask questions. This is definitely not where I thought part of my career would go, but I'll just give you an example in my own personal life is when I started my MBA program, one of my first classes was accounting and accounting was such a foreign concept to me. I struggled with it. I honestly reached out to one of the head accountants at my organization I was at and I asked him if I could come by and talk with him because to be quite honest, I needed help with my homework. So I started talking with him and he sort of explained the concept about transfer pricing that I did not understand. So he helped me out with that. And we sort of had this connection. We talked a little bit. He would show me some of the things that they were doing, how it worked in the real world, how it worked for a nonprofit. That led to me being introduced to the CEO and the CEO saying, gosh, we've never really had a physician interested in some of these things before. We've always wanted a medical director for revenue cycle and billing to answer some of these questions, to, to work with a team. Would you like to do that? And I said, sure, that was that sounds interesting. I've never done it before. Nobody's really ever done it before at our institution. So I just did it. And it became really such a positive experience for me, learning about that, being an advocate, not only for the physicians within the billing and revenue cycle department, which also took care of credentialing at the time, and then also being an advocate for the billing team to physicians as well. You sort of bridge that gap. And then there were more human conversations that you could have. It wasn't just this offsite billing component who changed my billing code and dropped my RVU and it cost me money in my compensation. They actually did it to help you out. And they, they did it to make sure that things were compliant. And I think when you start to have some of those more human connections within a healthcare system, it's only for the positive. Yeah. Credits are debits and debits are credits. Mind blown, right? Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. You know, you were talking about the human connection there. And a lot of times there's kind of a whole movement led by Eric Topol, for one, Mm -hmm. about how technology, for example, can lead to a more humanizing of medicine. And it sounds like that crosses a lot of different spaces. For example, just humanizing within the ranks of the hospital, just breaking down silos, talking to each other ensuring that the leadership team has representation from all kinds of people with disparate expertise sets so that the left hand knows what the right hand is doing, for one. And also that you don't wind up with a situation where the marketing team is trumpeting, this is all about the patients, and then the billing team is suing 
Walmart workers and postal workers and, and actually nurses who work in the hospital for unpaid, balance-billed medical tech. So you end up on the Screlly Awards again. <laughs> so you end up yeah. on the Screlly Awards again. We keep going there. You know, so, okay, so I'm trying to understand the lessons to be learned here from this conversation. It seems to me if we want to be a health system that can accomplish a couple of things, keeping the patient and the patient's needs and delivering outcomes that matter to the patient kind of at the top of the pyramid here. But actions that lead up to that are how can we introduce digital health, which actually fits within everybody's workflow and doesn't inadvertently create a cascade of other difficulties. So how are we doing digital health selection? That's kind of one thing that could ladder up to helping patients better. Another thing is ensuring that we've got physician leaders or clinician leaders, maybe I should say, to include nurses and advanced practice clinicians in there to ensure that we have representation from those who hold the relationship with the patient sacrosanct. How are we maintaining that connection? So we've got pick the right digital tools, hold the relationship, make sure we've got the right leadership. What else do we need to make sure that we've got in there? And I know this is kind of a big broad stroke of a list, but are we missing anything which immediately is going to ladder up to not being on the Shkreli Awards? <laughs> There's a couple of things that I think about. You know, Number one would be freedom to fail. There are so many projects that we will start in healthcare, or maybe we think about starting, but there's a lot of worry about failing. Uh, we don't like to fail. And they're a little bit different than sort of that startup Silicon Valley type mentality where you want to fail fast. You know, you want to iterate. We don't tend to do that. We only want to launch when we know it's going to be 100% effective. And the benefit of failing sometimes is that you learn a lot. And so I think part of it is creating that culture where it's okay to fail. You don't want to shun. You don't want to hide. You want to embrace some of those failures. So if you start a pilot program, if you have a digital health tool or, or some sort of piece of technology and it doesn't work, shut it down quickly, but learn from it and go on to the next iteration. I think that that is not part of our healthcare culture right now. And then I think it's really understanding some of the secondary benefits of some of these technologies. You know, what does it really mean if there isn't a significant revenue attached to it? We have that mentality that everything we do has to have a CPT code. It's got to be billed, but maybe not. You know, maybe there are things that we can really look at and say, well, this is going to make it so much better for clinicians that they're never going to want to leave that we don't have to worry about replacing a physician, which can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, up to $500,000 by some estimates to replace a clinician in your healthcare system. So, you know, you may not have a significant amount of revenue coming from voice-activated EMR transcription software, but you're not going to lose as many physicians every year. Your turnover is going to go down. And then I think the last thing I would say is starting the educational process on the business of healthcare earlier. But I think a lot of people could benefit from having some of the background on how the healthcare system works, what it's like to run a business, to be able to speak some of those other languages, to speak the language of accrual accounting, to be able to speak that language, starting in med school, starting in residency, really forming that as part of a leadership development tract, I think would be fantastic. It would be skills that I think are super important to me now that I wish I had five, 10 years earlier. So the earlier we start with exposing our clinicians to this information and really getting them a fundamental understanding of how that healthcare system works, they're going to be better off navigating through it 
for the rest of their career. I could even say, Matt, that even if your intention is to solely care for patients, that given all the stuff that we talked about earlier, there still could be a very good reason why the business is important to understand. And that is because obviously the business can encroach on any physician's ability to care for patients, number one. And then number two, if the physician is going to push back, you have to be able to be a knowledgeable participant in the conversation and understand the needs of the other party. So if you're talking to a suit. Absolutely. And the suit says something like, oh, well, this will diminish our revenue cycle management, our view, blah, blah, you know, like all the big words. (laughs) Then physicians like, okay, and can't really engage in the dialogue to come up with a mutually agreeable solution, then that's a problem. I think that's a great point. You have to have a good baseline. You have to be able to know. And then I think to be able to have physician leaders who then you can trust, then you can ask those questions too, maybe even on an ad hoc basis. I don't know exactly what X means from this uh, business side, but I know who to go to. And I think having those those connections clinician to clinician and especially physician to physician, I think is supremely important. There's just a way that I think you can approach that. I'll give you an example. I was working with a company once. They had a nice uh, little app that was really interesting and was it was actually founded by a clinician, but had brought in some investors and they had a very heavy hand in how this app was being developed and, and how they were selling it. I had a conversation with them and this gentleman from the board who happened to be a former CEO of a, a big finance corporation, you know, was talking about if we partnered, then they would have every physician in the, our whole group using it. And I said, well, you know, maybe not. We'd have to have some conversations. And he really pushed back and said, in my field, in finance, if I said something, all my employees did it. And there's no question. Why are you treating physicians any different? And I said, it's not different, but you can't dictate like that. That's, again, I think what you're, what you're talking about is you've got to be able to speak that language. So really anybody who has any patient care and wants to advocate for patient care really should have some of that background and really should be able to speak some of that language to be able to say, that's not how we're going to do it. Here's why. Or here's what we should do and here's why. I think that's brilliant. I'm going to parrot something that Dr. Arshad Rahim, who's the director of Pop Health over at Mount Sinai, he said to me the other day, he said, and I think he had heard it somewhere, but technology is top down, but the relationship between physicians and their patients is bottom up. And I thought that was really interesting. It was kind of echoed by the idea of if you roll out a, let's just say, remote patient visit software or something. You're going to have some doctors that want to do it in the morning and some doctors that it fits better in their schedule to do it after noon at lunch and some doctors who want to do it at the evening. And if you mandate something from the top, like everyone's going to do this at lunch, you're going to wind up with a problem because doctors are bottom up and technology always wants to be pushed down as a mandate. Is there a way to reconcile that? Is it okay for every doctor to do remote patient visits on their own time? Or like, must you be organization-wide? I think the answer to that is twofold. One is you have to engage physicians early on. You really have to engage them as early on in the process as possible. So if you're thinking about a remote solution, a telehealth solution, you've got to be able to talk to them from the very beginning. I know some groups have monthly roundtables with physicians and we say, hey, these are the projects we're thinking about, or here are some of the tweaks we're thinking about. Getting an hour over lunch with some physicians and saying, here's what we're thinking, give us some feedback. 
back, you're going to find a lot of problems ahead of time that you wouldn't have normally seen. And physicians, by definition, are very independent. And I don't think that there are things that you can always dictate. There are always unique situations, and there's always going to be something that you need to defer to the clinical acumen of that physician in the moment that there are things where you have to say X, Y, or Z was way more important than clicking this box for this specific encounter. And I think you have to have that trust in your clinicians and your physicians. So I don't think for most things you can just dictate it and you can just say, everybody, Tuesdays from one to three, you're going to do X, Y, or Z. I just don't know that you can do that without self-selecting out the really, really good clinicians. You've got to be able to partner with them sort of in the same way that they're partnering with their patients. You have to partner with them. It has to be a give and take. If you want to make sure that everybody's following the same sepsis bundle and you want to make sure everybody's doing X, Y, or Z, you have to know that there's going to be some one-offs and you have to believe in the clinical acumen of that physician in the moment, that positive intent that they did the right thing in their mind at the right moment. It can't be a punitive environment. So we keep spiraling around the same exact points. I don't know if you've noticed that, <laughs> that idea <laughs> that I, really, I mean, it's the idea of, you just said it, partnering. It's physicians yeah. being enabled to partner well with patients, putting that on a pedestal that relationship. But then it's also people within any given provider organization, clinicians, suits, everybody, being able to know enough to have mutual understanding, enough of it, to be able to partner also across the organization, be it relative to a sepsis protocol, a digital health solution that that is going to level up care or kind of anything else. That without partnership and communication and collaboration, it's not going to ultimately benefit the patient or the clinician or anybody else. You're absolutely right. I and mean, that's a fantastic, succinct way to put it. But you're right. The partnership, the collaboration, yeah, that was a, a really great summary. Well, thank you. Dr. Matt Anderson, if someone is interested in learning more about what you are up to in the innovation or physician leadership space, where would you direct them for more information? They can always reach out to me through my website. I blog at drmatthewanderson.com. And I'm also on social media. I do a lot of Twitter and LinkedIn. So I'd be more than happy to connect with anybody in, in the social media space. I work for Banner Health. So you can always go to bannerhealth.com as well. Dr. Matthew Anderson, thank you so much for being on the Relentless Health Value Podcast today. Thank you, Stacey. It was awesome. It was an honor. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.